Welcome to Dialogues with the Past, a High Point University history podcast dedicated to delving into the past and learning from historical experts from around the world. I am Mac Mullins, a history major and enthusiast. Today I am joined by High Point University's instructor in Latin American history who specializes in early colonial Cuban history, Dr. Shannon Layler. It's a pleasure to have you here, Dr. Layler. Thank you, Mac. Thanks for having me. So today we will be discussing the rather remarkable story of La Doña Guillomar de Guzman, a 16th century Spanish woman who was able to secure both her position and her family's wealth in the Spanish colonies of the Caribbean. Now, to set the scene, in 1492, a Genoese merchant and explorer, Christopher Columbus, in an expedition funded by Queen Isabella of Castile and her husband, King Ferdinand of Aragon, made the quote-unquote discovery across the Atlantic Ocean that there was an entirely new world. Dr. Layler, how exactly did the Iberian Peninsula react to these discoveries? Well, I think initially, Mac, with surprise, as you can imagine, um, Christopher Columbus actually set out to find a, a route to Asia. He wasn't really looking for um, a new world, as you so aptly call it. Um, instead, he was looking for a shortened route, a straighter route, a more direct route to spices and other commodities that they that were being traded with um, Asia and the Indian subcontinent at the time. Um, so I think initially in 1492, it wasn't clear what Columbus had actually found. Um, it was believed that perhaps he had made his way um, to some islands well off the coast um, in, in, in an area that we would think of today as perhaps Indonesia and those areas. Um, so um, initially, surprised perhaps that he'd actually managed to do what he set out to do, find something. Um, but then perhaps consternation um, in terms of what exactly had been discovered. So nowadays we are familiar with the concept of colonies, but during this time uh, we only had you know a few examples such as in the Canary Islands. So how exactly did we progress to the point where uh, explorers were settling on these islands that were discovered by Columbus? So I think that um, you know one of the ways that the Spanish and the Portuguese as well, so these Iberi- Iberian maritime empires operate, or at least operated in this period, is um, in order to create trading positions, um, colonies or small settlements would be um, developed. So, for example, in uh, on the western coast of Africa in the 1400s, we have the development of um, Portuguese, small Portuguese trading settlements designed to capitalize on um, the African trade, whatever it happened to be, whether it's gold and and other commodities and certainly enslaved peoples as well. Um, So the same is true in the Caribbean. Um, Initially, what Columbus seeks to do is develop some settlements that can capitalize, or at least in the the initial stages, learn about what commodities exist on these islands and how those commodities might be exploited um, by, in in his case, um, the Spaniards who accompany him. Um, to the New World. So what exactly were the commodities that were found on these islands? And specifically, what commodities were found on Cuba? So, um, you know, so certainly um, the indigenous peoples themselves um, represented a potential commodity 
um, for the Spanish and for the Portuguese as well, but primarily for the Spanish. Um, the, the indigenous peoples um, and their, um, particularly their ability to um, create agricultural products, that sort, those sorts of things. So in the very early stages, all the Spanish are really looking for um, is mineral wealth, typically in the form of gold or silver. Um, so the, the Caribbean islands do have some gold deposits. Cuba has gold as well. Um, later on Cuba, we have the discovery of copper. So there is copper mining that happens throughout the colonial period as well. Um, in addition to that, um, indigenous peoples as enslaved labor. Um, early on, the Spanish are um, putting into place labor regimes on the island that allow them to capitalize on native labor. And finally, um, the islands are really conducive to, um, to cattle and pigs and other livestock as well. So on the island of Cuba in particular, there are huge um, herds of cattle um, in, very shortly after um, colonization, conquest and colonization of the island, which begins in roughly 1518. So in terms of uh, colonies, we do tend to have this image of men within the early colonies of uh, Cuba and uh, the Caribbean. Were there any examples of women that existed during this time? Or? So it's funny that you should ask. So of course there are plenty of indigenous women who live um, on the islands of the Caribbean. So, um, so already, of course, women exist in these spaces. Um, and very soon thereafter, um, we do see the importation of enslaved Africans to the Caribbean. That happens very early on, um, at least as early as 1500. And in the early stages of um, colonization, conquest and colonization by the Spanish, the Spanish actually seek to bring equal numbers of African men and African women. The idea is that they are creating communities, right, that, that are self-perpetuating. Um, very few Spanish women um, actually come in the first, um, certainly in the first decade or two. Um, the first women seem to have traveled in Columbus's, the first Spanish women seem to have arrived in, Span in Columbus's second expedition, which comes to, um, which arrives in Hispaniola in 1493. Um, but Spanish women, um, increasingly come in larger numbers, but they are never, they never arrive in the kind of numbers that Spanish men are in this early phase of conquest. And typically you don't have aristocratic women, you have women uh, who are married to soldiers and um, sort of small scale merchants who are arriving in search of a, a new life in this new world. So what would their lives typically look like? Being from a working class environment, would they be interacting with the community, working uh, to help their husbands? What would be happening? Well, it's really funny that you should say that we don't know that much about what um, what Spanish women are doing in the colonies. The women that we do know about um, are aristocratic women or women of the higher nobility who come. Um, realistically, there aren't truly women of the high nobility who come. We have women who are sort of more of this middling noble class who arrive. Um, Doña Guimar is actually an example of that, um, as is Doña Isabel de Bovadilla, who serves as the governor of Cuba briefly between 1539 and 1542. So these women, the, what we know about what women are doing on the island is 
we know from examining the entourages of these women who are members of the nobility. So typically, household servants is what we're really talking about. Um, women who whose husbands are members of expeditionary forces that are planning on doing um, or you know planning on participating in the conquest of Florida, the conquest ultimately you know a little bit later of um, the Aztec Empire as well. These are men who um, who are tend to be regular foot soldiers and their wives work in the households of women of the higher class. So they're doing things like cooking and cleaning and taking care of children um, and overseeing indigenous and African enslaved women's in the, women in the household as well. So you mentioned our protagonist, uh, Guillomar de Guzman. Uh, so where exactly is she from? How did she enter the picture? So um, Doña Guimar is actually from Spain. She's a Spanish woman. It's not clear exactly where her family is from in Spain. The Guzmans are... Um, are a, a family of the Hidalgo class. The Hidalgo class is a, it's a privileged class in Spanish society, but it's not something that we would consider to be the high nobility. They are instead, um, they really provide a range of um, wealth and status um, within this group. So you have some members of the Hidalgo class who are very wealthy and well-off, and you have other members of the Hidalgo class who or what we would think of as somebody in the middle class, perhaps, or even um, in the more popular classes in um, in Spain. So she arrives on the scene. Her brother is actually in the Caribbean. He has um, he arrives in the Caribbean very early on, probably in the early 1500s, around 1502 or 1504, perhaps. Um, and he is establishing himself in the Caribbean. He has a partner um, who is, so his name is Pedro de Guzman. His, um, his partner is called um, Pedro de Paz. And he is, um, they are both from this Hidalgo class. It's not clear when she arrives in the Caribbean. It's not clear if she comes with her brother, which often happens. Um, family groups do travel together to the Caribbean. And it is the safest way for women who are single to come to the Caribbean, typically as part of a family group or with a brother or si or other siblings, a parent. Um, so it's highly likely that she arrived at a later date um, as that her brother had asked her um, to come to the Caribbean. So you mentioned uh, Pedro de Paz. And so this is quite an important figure within our story. So could you tell me a little bit more about him and how exactly did he earn his income around here? So, um, so Pedro de Paz, um, again, prior to his arrival in the Americas, nothing is really known about his activities in Spain. It's not clear exactly what his family looks like, where he's from. Um, he is, again, a member of the Hidalgo class. He himself, in his final will and testament, claims that he came to um, the Americas to the Caribbean um, in the, again, the early 1500s that he arrived around 1502. He um, also says that he arrived with 500 ducados in his pocket, which is a, which is a Spanish monetary unit. Um, it sounds minimal, but the reality is a ducado is, 
is is actually a, a significant amount of money, and to have 500 of them is also significant. So he's attempting, I think, to downplay things a little bit. But of course, he immediately follows um, this statement of coming with only 500 Ducatos um, with the um, assertion that that money is very quickly stolen from him by Frenchmen um, on the island of Hispaniola, which is where uh, where he arrives. And so he, um, he comes and he enters into a, a partnership almost immediately with Pedro de Guzman, who is the brother of Doña Guimar. Um, and so that is um, his entry into um, this colonial world. The thing that's really fascinating about this aspect of things is that very quickly he's awarded Indians in repartimiento, which basically means that the governor of the island at the time, who would have been Nicolas Ovando, um, as he was divvying up indigenous peoples and, and indigenous groups um, to award them to the Spanish for tribute and labor, um, that that Pedro de Paz was in a position to command the award of these Indians in repartimiento because this doesn't happen for everybody. This is um, somewhat unusual. You have to have a particular position in society and cachet in order for that to happen or a very particular relationship, um, either as a family member or via patronage with the governor of the island as well. So again, his, you know, his recounting of his arrival and I think an attempt to suggest that he has humble beginnings is a little disingenuous. So you mentioned the repartimiento system. Could you tell us a little bit more about uh, why this existed in the first place and why was this justified? So the repartimiento has a history um, in Spain. It is, um, it is a, a way that the Spanish crown divvied up Muslim populations among its nobility in exchange and as a reward for um, providing men to fight against um, the Muslim caliphates that control parts of the Iberian Peninsula between 711 and 1492. So the repartimiento is, um, is really designed to provide tribute in the form of goods and labor um, from, it, in the first place, Muslim communities, but it's transported or exported in some case, or imported, I suppose, um, to the Caribbean. And in the Caribbean, it is designed to provide Spaniards with indigenous groups that then provide tribute for them and in in the form of um, primarily agricultural goods really but labor is also a portion of it as well. So now that we have a general idea of this uh, let's move back to our uh, figures. So we do do ultimately know that Pedro de Paz and uh, Guillomar de Guzman do end up marrying. Could you tell us a little bit of how they met? Uh, how did they get married? <laughs> well it's such an excellent question that I don't know the answer to, to be completely, uh, to be completely transparent. In the documents, um, it, suddenly they're married, if that makes sense. So there is no, I, I have not been able to find um, any particular agreement. Typically there are marital agreements. These agreements are made between the families. There is an exchange of um, not only dowry, but also um, promises of arras, which is basically um, the groom is required to deposit um, a certain amount um, of money, usually 10% of his net worth. 
with the bride's family. Um, that is paid directly to the bride, or at least it's supposed to be. Um, so typically, these you can find documents that list these arrangements and how they work, um, and what what's being exchanged. In this case, I haven't been able to locate any documents um, that ha- that reference this this relationship or how the marital agreement ca- came to be in, in existence. My honestly, my I would conjecture that because um, Guzman, Pedro de Guzman, and um, Pedro de Paz are partners, that it's it's a natural sort of outcome of these partnerships in many cases that there are um, familial relationships that develop as a result through marriage. So women in the family are married to partners. That further solidifies the partnership and also um, serves to um, support and really undergird um, the partnership between two men. So it, it makes perfect sense to me that this would be something, obviously it happens later, it doesn't happen in 1502. They've seemed to be married sometime, um, probably around 1515, maybe a little bit earlier than that. Um, and then it probably resulted, it came as a result of this partnership between the two men. So 1515, uh, the, around this date, Cuba had been conquered and land had been uh, dispatched out. So what would life had looked like for Guzman? Would she have had family? Would she have given birth to children? How was her relationship with these family members? So in, um, so in 1515, in that range, um, Pedro de Paz um, was still on the island of Hispaniola at that time. Um, he was actually overseeing, along with Pedro de Guzman, um, this repartimiento that they received um, in a, as, as, as uh, Pedro de Paz um, describes it, in a very rich valley. So they had access to gold mines. In addition to that, the valley itself was quite fertile. Um, it's one of the areas of, um, of indigenous resistance um, in the very early colonial period, so it has um, it it holds a lot of interest for Spaniards and the indigenous in those regions have had their caciques and cacicas um, killed by the Spaniards. So the Spaniards really kind of run the show in this particular valley. Although there still is there still are pockets of resistance there. Could you clarify what a cacique and a cacica is? Absolutely. So um, caciques are. Um, are native, they're indigenous um, leaders, chieftains typically, and a cacica is just a female indigenous leader. Um, what ends up happening in the very early conquest of the Caribbean in particular, cacique is a Taino word that basically equates to chieftain. And what the Spanish do with the word cacique is um, they use the word cacique throughout Spanish America to apply to anybody who is um, in charge of um, or is the leader of a, an indigenous group, even though the word cacique, again, is a Taino word that really has resonance really only in the Caribbean, but the Spanish adopt it, um, and then you see it used you know, everywhere in Peru, um, in, you know, in New Spain, in Mexico as well. Um, so these, um, so the caciques, male, um, male chieftains, become the object of Spanish um, activity, you could say. So typically the Spaniards like to um, replace caciques with caciques. Um, they, 
because caciques offer the opportunity for Spaniards to marry them. And when a Spaniard marries a cacique, in particularly in Caribbean society, then that means that he, in some respects, has control of these indigenous groups as well. So this is another way that the um, that the Spaniards seek to um, insert themselves into um, indigenous power dynamics in order to you know to capitalize on resources, including native native labor as well. Excellent. So could you uh, go further in depth on Guzman and her family? Certainly. So um, in 1515, Pedro de Paz is still on the island of Hispaniola overseeing this, um, this area of the island that has, that has this, the Indians in Repartimiento. Um, so he is, so, so Doña Grimar at this point is probably living in Santo Domingo or one, or one of the larger urban centers. Um, she's not living out in the wilds. Typically, the Spaniards don't do that. Um, in addition to that, there, the Spanish crown has a prohibition on um, Spaniards living in indigenous communities. So those indigenous communities that exist in this area of Hispaniola called Maguana um, are going to be um, existing ostensibly without the interference of Spaniards or Spanish communities. So she's undoubtedly living in one of the larger urban centers during this period. Um, based on what we know about her entourage later on the island of Cuba, it's not clear that she has any members of her family with her. Um, it may be that she and her brother um, are the remnants of that family. It's not clear. Typically with cousins and um, and other extended family members, you might have larger households based on um, what actually are really patronage and client um, relationships. It's not clear who makes up her household on the island of Hispaniola. In much the same way, it's rather unclear who is part of that household on the island of Cuba later. Um, she undoubtedly has servants um, who are in Spanish are called criadas, um, and other members of the household, perhaps enslaved indigenous peoples, typically women um, and men as well. Um, and by this point, undoubtedly, some African slaves as well. But it's not entirely clear. She does have um, children. They have four children together, she and Pedro de Paz. So at least um, one of them is born on Hispaniola. Um, it may be very well be that the rest of them were actually born um, on the island of Cuba a little bit later when Pedro de Paz takes up residence there. Unfortunately, tragedy appears to have struck Guzman and her family in 1537. Uh, could you please tell me about what happened? Certainly. So, um, so as early as 1529, um, Pedro de Paz has some kind of infirmity, and he requests from the king and queen of Spain license to travel back to Spain. Um, so all Spaniards um, who arrive in the Indies are required to request a license that is then awarded to them or denied, it can be denied as well, um, for the right to travel to the Indies. This, In this way, the Spanish crown keeps track of who's coming back and forth. The same is true on the other side. So um, you have to request a license to travel back to Spain. And because Pedro de Paz um, is on the island in an official capacity, so he's serving as 
the royal contador or accountant for um, the Spanish crown on the island. He has to request a license from the crown, and that license typically only covers a period of roughly 16 months. So he can only be absent and maintain his position for 16 months. So in 1529, he apparently he has made this request. The queen, um, there is a document where the queen is asking about this infirmity and what exactly it is and what the nature of the infirmity is and how long he will have to be in Spain. So he travels back to Spain in 1530. So between 1530 and 1537, roughly every year and a half, he requests a new license to remain in Spain. Um, it appears that in 1536 that his death may have been imminent. His wife, Doña Guiamar, and her children have all requested licenses. In addition to that, two executors of his estate have also requested licenses to return to Cuba from Spain as well. In 1537, Pedro de Paz does indeed pass away. Um, and it appears that one of his children, his youngest daughter, also dies at about the same time as well. So it's curious because there's no discussion of what this, infirmi this, inf this infirmity actually is. It's not clear. It could be disease. And in that case, perhaps his, their youngest child also died from the same infirmity. So now that uh, De Paz has passed away, ultimately his possessions will be passed on as well. How exactly did inheritance work in colonial Cuba? So, um, you know, so, so these, these folks are Spaniards, and so they, um, you know, they understand inheritance in the same way that those Spaniards living on the Iberian Peninsula do. So um, Spaniards have wills, and in their wills they spell out very clearly who is going to get what. Um, Pedro de Paz has a son, one son, um, his other children are daughters, and that son, he would like to inherit his position um, of this position of contador. Um, so Spaniards who Spaniards in general are looking for hereditary titles. They are looking for positions that can be passed down to their children and their children's children. In this case, um, Pedro de Paz's son is a minor at the time, so he can't technically become the contador of Cuba. So um, as part of the will, this title is in the will as well, and also the division of other properties. In addition to um, those divisions of properties, um, every person who makes a will designates someone not only who will be executor of that will, but in addition to that, in the case of children, someone who will be responsible for the children as um, a tutor, sort of a, you know, a teacher in a sense, but the, you know, the real idea is a guardian. Um, and so in his will, he designates his wife as the guardian of their children and, again, divvies up this property. But he leaves it to his wife to be responsible for the ultimate division of this property and to be responsible as well for overseeing the property so that it's in good shape when it's passed on to his children. So now around this point in uh, our story, uh, a figure named Hernando de Castro enters. Who exactly was this man? So um, Hernando de Castro is another Spanish settler on the island of Cuba. He appears to have been in the Caribbean for some time. Um, he and Pedro de Paz have a long association and relationship with each other. 
Um, and when Pedro de Paz leaves the island of Cuba, he needs to designate someone to oversee his properties. And in addition to that, this, um, this position that he holds as well as Contador. So what he does is he designates Hernando de Castro as that person. So um, the understanding is that Castro will provide um, to Pedro de Paz in Spain um, the proceeds of, of his properties each and every year, and that there will be an accounting of those proceeds, um, and all of those will be sent to Spain um, and given to Pedro de Paz. S unfortunately, um, things don't work out exactly the way Pedro de Paz uh, imagines that they will. So, uh, so what exactly did de Castro do? So he, um, so what uh, what it appears that he did is that he um, kept most of the proceeds of the properties. Um, so Pedro de Paz has um, cattle. He has um, mining interests. He has all kind. He's sort of got his hands in a lot of different pies on the island. Um, so it appears that Castro saw this as his opportunity. He remits a very small amount, about 6,000 Ducados, um, over the course of this seven- or eight-year period in which, um, in which Pedro de Paz is absent from the island. Um, and he, um, he pockets the rest of it, apparently. So, um, so Pedro de Paz is already sort of raising an alarm in Spain at this point. So as the decade um, wears on, he is more and more concerned that money is not forthcoming from Cuba and begins to um, instigate litigation against Castro um, for a full accounting of what's going on with those properties and where that money is going as well. So in order to reclaim this wealth, uh, uh, de Guzman needed to navigate the court system. And so what exactly did this look like in the Caribbean? So... Um, so it's interesting. It, it's, that's, a, that's a really good question. So basically, um, what happens is she has her own representative on the island of Cuba, and this person is tasked with um, demanding um, an accounting of the properties. Castro is not forthcoming with these things at all. And in this period, in the early colonial period, um, there's a there are a number of ways to sort of escape this level of scrutiny. And Castro has enough power on the island, and he has enough support that he's able to sort of dodge these requests. Um, they are, again, to, there's an audiencia in Santo Domingo at this point where much of these kinds of um, disputes would be handled. But again, because, um, because Doña... Guimar is not actually in the Caribbean, and she's not on the island of Cuba. She has limited opportunities to avail herself of this system and instead must work within a patronage system that exists on the island of Cuba but across the Caribbean as well um, in order to attempt to bring Castro you know, to justice or at least um, to force him to come up with the money that he owes the family. And how did this uh, patronage system work? Well, typically, you know, a lot of the patronage system itself, certainly on the island of Cuba, is based on families and familial associations. So, um, 
So these are personal relationships that develop between and amongst families on the island. Cuba has, um, by this time, um, a pretty well-established oligarchy. It's you know a, a ruling class that really const- is constituted by a number of families. She has, she does have a relative on the island, a distant relative. His name is Gonzalo de Guzman, and Gonzalo is actually really powerful. He is the governor of Cuba um, on a couple of different occasions for extended periods of time. He is one of the primary citizens of the island. But again, in her absence. She's not able to tap into this particular patronage network because Castro is there. He's on the ground, and he is tapping into um, these different relationships that he has on the island and therefore, in a sense, um, sort of pushing her and her demands into the background. So how ultimately did this dispute get resolved? So um, in 1538... Um, she is planning to come to the Americas. She's planning to come back to Cuba, to return to Cuba. Um, she, it's an interesting, an interesting aspect of this is that um, the fact that there is no member of her family, of her immediate nuclear family on the island is really problematic because Castro uses the fact that none of them are there to say, well, they can't, I mean, why do I have to do anything at all? They're not even here, so it doesn't matter. There's no one, you know, I'm taking over, I'm doing this job of contador in the absence of any member of this family. Um, So Doña Guimar has to argue that her son is a minor, that he's at the University of Salamanca, um, that he must stay there at the university and continue and finish his education before coming to Cuba. So she's having to sort of play around with um, this question of whether or not they can demand anything from Castro because they're not on the island. So in 1538, she's sort of going back and forth. She's requested a license license to travel along with her daughters. Um, Actually, not all of her daughters, but one of her daughters. Um, And um, she is trying to figure out how this is going to work. So In 1540, she actually does return to the island. And once she gets there, um, the resolution is pretty quick. Once she's there in person and she's able to reestablish her position in these patronage networks and she's able to um, bring to the attention, not that anybody wasn't attentive, but because she is there and able to bring to the attention of um, members of these patronage networks, that indeed she has a claim, she, they have been cheated by Castro, then things happen very quickly. He, his, his argument collapses. She is awarded um, the monies that they are owed. She is now in charge of their properties and receiving the revenue that they should have been receiving all along. Um, and in addition to that, she's able to protect the position of Contador until her son is old enough to take over. So given the success of de Guzman's case, what exactly do we see happening to her following her victory? So um, so it appears that when she, um, when she returns to the island of Cuba, um, you know, in Cuba, the, you know, Pedro de Paz and, and Doña Guimar, they are part of this oligarchy. They have extensive properties and holdings on the island. Um, so I think 
what it appears to, to be the case is that she enjoyed being on the island of Cuba. She remained there. Um, in uh, So during this period in the early 1540s, um, this is the period in which Doña Isabel de Bobadilla is the acting governor of the island while her husband, Hernando de Soto, is on the, um, um, on the failed expedition to Florida. Hernando de Soto um, is killed um, on the banks of the Mississippi River. Um, when this happens, uh, the information is, is a long time coming back to Cuba. But when it does arrive on the island... Um, Doña Isabel de Boidia makes plans to go back to Spain, and the Spanish crown must appoint a new governor. So they do. His name is Juan Estiavila, and he, um, he arrives on the island in 1544. Um, when this happens, um, he apparently begins residing in the home of Doña Guimar de Guzman, um, and rumors abound about what's happening how this woman in her 50s would be entertaining a man in his early 30s in her home. There's all kinds of um, very salacious gossip about um, how this older woman would be with this younger man. And um, eventually the two are married, actually, um, on the island. And, um, you know, as one, um, as one observer on the island put it, uh, um, Avila is far more interested in seeing to the needs of Doña Guimar. So she, uh, their family fortune only gets larger um, with the attentions of the Cuban governor. So there seems to be a bunch of gossip going abound within colonial Spain here. <laughs> uh, what, what, the, what do we see with these Spaniards? Are they massive gossips? <laughs> well, I mean, I think that, um, you know, it's it's probably it's probably really important to remember that um, these colonial um, societies are really insular, right? There's not a whole lot of Spaniards there. Um, they have all kinds of issues with each other, as is the case in any community, and and certainly in any small community where many people are related to each other in one way or another. So a slight against one member of the community becomes a slight against many members of the community, and so. Um, I have to say it's one of the most fun parts of um, of studying this particular period and this particular place as well is the things that Spaniards say about each other. It's fascinating. So in this case, you know, the gossip serves uh, perhaps as a way of um, attempting to curb the impulses of Avila in terms of um, the fortunes of Doña Guimar, but they're unsuccessful. And the gossips are unsuccessful in, in keeping him from doing the things that he wants to do that are going to enrich her fortune and ultimately his own. Um, but gossip in general, um, you know, I think in Spanish society really provides for us a window on the fact that these are really human beings, right? These are people interacting with each other much in the same way that we interact with people in our daily lives as well. And those interactions are sometimes positive and sometimes not so positive. And the fact that gossip is, um, in some instances, fun. It's a pastime for people. And it's the same thing among the Spanish in this colonial world as well. So ultimately, we see that Guzman has now uh, control over a large fortune. She is married to the governor of Cuba. 
How exactly does she uh, live out the rest of her days? So it's not entirely clear from the documents. Um, it appears that she remains on the island of Cuba. It's not clear whether or not um, her son, also called Pedro de Paz, whether or not he ever comes to the island and takes over the position of Contador. Again, the Spanish crown at this point is um, starting to become somewhat fretful about these hereditary titles and positions. And they are more and more and more attempting to um, clamp down on the ability of Spaniards to leave these kinds of positions to each other. Um, so it's not clear that he ever comes to the island and takes over the position of Contador, um, although there is something that alludes to the fact that he does actually come to the island. As far as Doña Guillemar is concerned, she seems to have passed away um, sometime in the 1550s, so somewhat shortly after the episode that we're talking about now. But again, um, the, the problem with records on the island of Cuba is that they are, for this very early period, they are scarce. Um, and some things just don't make it back to Spain um, and, and have not become part of this larger, the larger archives that exist on the Iberian Peninsula. Um, the reality is that, um, that things get also get really mismanaged sometimes and you know put in different places in the archive too. So it is entirely possible that that material exists, which is one of the wonderful aspects of being involved in um, archival research on colonial Spanish America because things pop up out of the archives all the time and help flesh out these stories in a way that, um, you know, a skeleton is provided and then we all, you know, work together um, collectively to flesh that skeleton out. So, so hopefully we'll know, you know, what, how she met her end. Um, but now, for now, we don't. And what exactly do you believe Guzman's story tells us about the role of women and wealth within Cuban society? Well, you know, I think, um, you know, one of the most fascinating aspects of um, Doña Guimar's experience in the colonial Caribbean is simply the fact that she is um, behaving in exactly the same way that any male Spaniard would behave in her position. So she is... Um, using these patronage networks. She's relying upon them. She is attempting to use the court system as well to make sure that um, her wealth and privilege is protected and it's protected for her children. She is attempting to create or at least to perpetuate generational wealth um, that can then be handed down to her children and their children as well. So the thing that I think is probably most significant about her experience in the early colonial Caribbean and the lesson of her life is that women in, um, in colonial Spanish America play roles of significance in their societies, and they are pivotal um, in the development of civil society and in the development of, um, of the economies of the Caribbean islands in particular, but across Spanish America as well. Thank you, Dr. Shannon Layler, uh, instru instructor in Latin American history with a specialization in Cuban history from High Point University. Uh, 
Thank you all for tuning in. This has been Dialogues with the Past, a High Point University history podcast. I am Mac Mullins, and until next time.